Hey, y'all. How's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I just keep showing up here. I've really got nowhere else to go. So here I am, doing anti-war stuff for you on the Liberty Radio Network. Uh, live noon to two on the weekdays. KPFK on Sunday mornings. Today's show, David Vine. Yeah, man, I've been uh, real slow on the interviews this week. It's been kind of just one per day. Is it already Thursday again? I'm having real trouble with all this forward time travel thing going on. Um, yeah, and I'm having uh, real trouble getting people to do my dang show, man. Um, but I have a couple invites out. You know, I don't know, maybe I'll still hear back from Shane Bauer. He wrote a thing I'd like to uh, hear him talk about. I'll tell you that. Um, but David Vine is going to be on. Uh, he's going to talk about America's world empire. The bases. After Chalmers Johnson died, uh, basically Nick Terse and David Vine both took it upon themselves to make sure that somebody is keeping track of all of the Pentagon's global bases. And so, um, he's the guy that wrote the book Island of Shame. All about the Portugosians from Diego Garcia, who were cleansed to make way for an American naval torture base. Naval slash torture base. I think it was the CIA doing the torture and the Navy was just holding the, the base down there. But anyway, um, in that book, Island of Shame, he has a whole chapter on the global empire. More than that, the whole book kind of talks all about how it came to be that uh, the Navy uh, promoted a guy to whatever important rank, important enough rank, who had just spent his childhood looking at an atlas and all the tiny little islands in the world, and who just made himself so very useful to the Navy, saying, oh, you know where we could put a base? We could put one here, 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 and here. And eventually this guy joined the fight to restore... Uh, Diego Garcia to the Chagosians after the end of the Cold War, he said, well, you know, the crisis is over, so it's not fair we should give these people their land back. But anyway, it's a very interesting story, and and David Vine, he's really good on this stuff, so there you go. Uh, so yeah, that's coming up. He wrote this thing for Tom Dispatch last week. I've been chasing him all around trying to get him on the show, saying things to him like, hey, do the dang show! And stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. So, other than that, I got bad news to talk about. Let's see here. I got, uh, yeah, we're going to do that. But before we, uh, no, after we do that, then we're going to do uh, Pakistan. We've got Yemen. Uh, Islamic State, Libya News, Israel, Palestine, Iran, North Korea. Oh yeah, lots of stuff. And not all of it is bad news, really. Some of it is okay news, but most of it's bad news. So that's what's going to be going on for the rest of the show. Uh, 
but we start with this. It's from RT, but whatever. It's not made up. You can find it wherever you want. It's not really on Russia issues or anything. It's... Anyway. Time to help them. Israeli justice minister calls for independent Kurdish state. And this is... And isn't that funny? You know, the Kurdish people really deserve their own state. <laughs> says a lady right over the heads of the Palestinians she's standing on top of. Uh, she's from the far-right Jewish home party, Eilat Shaked, the uh, justice minister. She's the lady who said that, um, uh, you know, put on Facebook of how it's permissible to kill all Palestinian civilians because they're all either the terrorists or the mothers of little snakes and all this kind of thing. The kind of thing that not even Donald Trump could get away with saying about American blacks. Or Arabs, for that matter. Muslims. That they're all little snakes. That they're... Well, actually, Donald Trump did say that, yeah, you know, their families, we ought to go after their families. So I don't know. But she's the Attorney General of Israel. And you know what? No matter how bad Trump lowers the bar, that doesn't make this okay. He doesn't get to lower the bar. The bar's already the bar. Uh, but anyway, so what's funny is uh, she doesn't make any uh, hay about it or, you know, she's not coy about it at all. This would be good for Israel, she says. We must openly call, which I don't know why she thinks Israel openly calling for a Kurdish state is the best way to create one. But anyway... We must openly call for the establishment of a Kurdish state that separates Iran from Turkey, one which will be friendly toward Israel, Shakid told the annual INSS security conference in Tel Aviv on Tuesday, as cited by the Times of Israel. The minister stressed that Israel should, quote, promote steps that would correct the injustice that made Kurds the biggest nation without a state. She also emphasized that the Kurds are an ancient people with thousands of years of history and a democratic nation, one that has never attacked any other nation. The Kurdish people are a partner for the Israeli people, she added. We Kurds and Jews have a long history. We have common interests in trying to stop Daesh, and the Kurds are fighting ISIS with all their might. Uh, let's see here. Oh, and then... uh Major General Amos Yadlin concurred at the same meeting. He stressed that the 20 million Kurds who didn't get a state and nobody takes care of are the only ones who are serious about defeating ISIS. The Kurds are the only ones fighting ISIS as their highest priority. You know, it makes me wonder whether um, Rand Paul's call for the creation of the Islamic State was a direct result of his meeting with Sheldon Adelson. I think I'll have to go back and check the timeline on that. It was clear that he promised Adelson that he would be bad on the Iran deal if Adelson would promise not to run the stop Rand front, which turned out wasn't necessary at all because there was nothing to stop because nobody liked him because he opposed the Iran deal. For one thing. Keep on compromising, dude. But anyway, I wonder now whether that's where he got this idea about, yeah, we ought to have an independent Kurdistan. It's because that's what the Israelis and the Israel lobby wants. Okay, so here's the story, though, is that it's true that the Kurds have always been screwed. They've always been dominated. Well, I don't know, always, but 
for a very long time, they've been dominated by foreign powers, mostly by the Turks and the Ottoman Empire. And then after World War One, when America helped Britain and France smash the Middle East and the old Ottoman Empire and take the whole place over, uh, Wilson even had in his 14 points about, you know, ethnic determina- self-determination and how the Kurds ought to have their own state, but they didn't get one. And right now, I mean, it's, it's just a fact. Go look at uh, the region of Kurdistan on a map. And it's huge. And it sure does seem unfair, a historical injustice. Not that I'm an ethnic collectivist, but let's face it, in the old world, that's how these things go. As she puts it, they're a nation without a state. I love all of the kind of hidden Freudian messages in there, these Israelis talking about the Kurds like this without mentioning the Palestinians or any, you know, obvious self-awareness of the Palestinian issue as they speak. But anyway, here's the problem, though. None of our business. And here's the other problem, no matter whose business it is. If America had a Ron Paulian Switzerland foreign policy where our government completely butted out, uh I'm not so sure this is in Israel's interest or even the Kurds' interest to try to have a, a, a Kurd, independent Kurdish state at this point. Uh, because what that would mean almost certainly is war with Baghdad and Ankara and Tehran and, I guess, Damascus, what's left of the government of Syria. I don't know the capitals of Azerbaijan and Armenia, but still, I think you get the drift there. It would mean a five-front war. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. <laughs> So, man, I don't know, dude. You know, why should this have to be on me to be the best on Hayton Rand? Uh, thank you, Christian. You know, just as we went to break, the tweet came in from Christian Evans here on Twitter. March 4th, 2015, Rand meets Adelson. March 11th, 2015. Rand comes out in support of independent Kurdistan, of, quote, guaranteeing that the U.S. should promise them a state and guarantee its borders. One week. He just tweeted to, uh, I believe in coincidences, but that isn't one. Yeah, uh, retweet, dude. That's what I'm saying, too. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Hey, you know, sorry, here's the part of the show where I talk about Rand, because I just can't help it. I just can't help it. Okay, so you're Rand, 
and you spend your whole life knowing that your dad's problem is he's just too radical and he's just too willing to say the radical thing and, you know, stake out his position of purest principle where no one can hear him and no one cares. And if only he was a little bit more conservative, like Rand was a little bit more hawkish, especially on foreign policy and stuff like that, a little more acceptable to the Republicans, then he could really get much further in life. And then Rand thought that he somehow proved that theory by the way that he won election to the Senate. And thought, some more like that is the ticket. That's the win. That's how I'll become the president of the United States of America. But what is he, deaf, dumb, blind, and stupid, and got his head shoved so far up his own ass that he can't see that all Ron needed wasn't to tone down what he had to say about war and peace and truth and freedom and sound money? All that had to happen was he needed a breakout moment. He needed exposure. Every libertarian who knew of Ron Paul in 2007 and 8, well, not every one of us or whatever, but a great man of us, we love him. He was like a folk hero in America for a very small percentage of people who were paying attention to what he was doing, who had ever heard of him before by luck or whatever. Um... But then once he kicked Giuliani's ass on the question of whether or not the 20th century existed and whether or not George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton had done many, many terrible things in order to provoke the September 11th attack against the United States, blam, all of a sudden, as soon as he's famous, his entire message, not just on blowback, but on central banking, on the drug war, on get government out of marriage altogether. That way we don't have to fight about it. About everything that Ron is great on, which is a hundred things. The entire message sold to millions. He went from zero to 400 miles an hour in three months. Doesn't Rand remember? That's how he got elected to the Senate, not by being a compromiser and a sellout and a whatever. It was because everybody loved his dad so much. They assumed that he was good like his dad, and they gave him money. And after all, it was that whole anti-establishment insider type of a, a spirit going on at the time, the same as is going on right now, which he wrote on, but... So then, once Rand got in there, and he, well, even before that, since he started running, and he just keeps getting worse and worse on this, all he seeks to do is compromise, compromise, compromise. And not in a way like Ron did, where Ron said, listen, I'll compromise. Well, and you know what? I really disagree with the way Ron compromised on immigration bills. He would vote for immigration bills that I think are beyond the pale. But that's pretty much it. The rest of Ron Paul's compromise was... You know what? It was like a compromise more with the left than with the right. Although, if you ask the right rank-and-file voters, I'm sure that they would see it more this way, uh, rather than, you know, people who are born rich or, you know, own companies or whatever. And that is, Ron said, I'll shore up Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by abolishing the empire. We don't need it anyway. How's that for a compromise? We'll keep the welfare state for now. 
but we'll get rid of the warfare state. Can we all come together for that? Instead, what does Rand decide to compromise on? War! Guantanamo! Prison without trial? He compromises on prison without trial. He compromises on bombing people to death. He compromises on the Iran nuclear deal, which just think politically, never even mind honesty and truth and morality and the future and any of these things, but just in terms of politics. He is so afraid to be good on the Iran deal, but just think of how much mileage he could have gotten out of that, being the only Republican who is for the Iran deal and him is able to defend it no problem with three quarters of his brain tied behind his back because all the opposition to it is stupid and ignorant and ridiculous. All he'd have to do is spend half an hour studying the issue and then he could get out there and fight about it all day long. And just like I talk about all the time on the show, he can protect his right flank by saying everyone criticizing me are the same people who said we got to get rid of Saddam, which is the best thing anyone ever did for Iran. So they can all shut up. And he'd be in the news every day for a year straight. He would be the top headline. Oh, no, another thing Rand said about Iran, y'all. Another thing Huckabee called Rand a traitor. Rand fires back again. All year long. Instead, he's nowheresville because nobody cares. Because everybody thought, oh, good, Ron Paul, only younger and in the Senate, gave up on that a long time ago. Whoever this guy is, meh, forget it. He completely sabotaged himself. And, and what a shame. And, you know, there are some signs recently, I think, that he's decided, oh, man, I really need to try to appeal to libertarians a little bit more. But it's just way too late. Nobody's even listening anymore. He doesn't. He won't, He can't even get any coverage anymore. You know? But if he would just... If he would just attack the Republicans in a serious way for what warmongers they are, if he would get himself educated and have himself some things to say about what these people have done to the damn 21st century so far. Just getting it off on the wrong foot in every way they possibly can. He could get so much mileage out of it. If he would just read his father's articles and then quote them. Just as my father says, blah, 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 blah. There's another great way to get in the headlines. Rand decides to start quoting his father on the war. What does this mean for the future of Freudian psychology? You know, Daily Caller with the news special out this week. Something, anything. Oh, I know. We'll promise the Kurds their own state and guarantee its borders against all comers, including our allies and our enemies and everyone else. Because that's what Sheldon Adelson told me to say. I love Bitcoin, but there's just something incredibly satisfying about having real, fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity disks are so neat. They're one-ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve Notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate 100 bucks to The Scott Horton Show, he'll send you one. Learn more at Facebook.com slash Commodity Disks. CommodityDisks.com. 
you hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott. It's my show, Scott Horton Show here. ScottHorton.org for the archives and the podcast feeds and the chat room and all that stuff. All right, today's guest is David Vine. He is the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Before that, he wrote Island of Shame, about uh, America and Britain's war against the poor civilian population of Diego Garcia. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, David? Thanks so much, Scott. It's great to be with you. Uh, good to have you on here. And I was explaining to the people earlier that, eh, I guess, basically the way I see it, after Chalmers Johnson died, you and Nick Terse both kind of took up the chore of keeping track of America's empire of military bases around the world. I mean... You know, the the Pentagon puts the reports out themselves. Well, I don't know of any other journalists who make it their business to make sure that we have current, you know, figures on all this stuff and a good understanding of what it all means. And so uh, it's very important work, and I really appreciate it. And um, I was also telling the audience before that in the book about the Chagosians, about Diego Garcia, that there's at least one full chapter on the Empire bases as well that's just as good as anything Johnson ever wrote on it as far as... Um, explaining, describing the totality of it and everything. So uh, wonderful stuff there. Really appreciate it. That is uh, too kind of you. And, and uh, I, I, I don't know about it being better than Chalmers Johnson's. But, well, I didn't say better. I don't know about even putting it in the same ballpark as, as Chalmers Johnson's well, work. But, yeah, um, I'm not saying, better. you know, it, it is that chapter is nemesis. But I'm saying as far as the description of what it is that we're dealing with here. Yeah. You know what it is, dude. You're doing Thank it. Thank you. Okay, so here we go. Doubling down on a failed strategy, the Pentagon's dangerous new base plan. And this is, I think, maybe goes to show a slight rift between the president and the military. Maybe not, but at least he likes to talk a lot about, you know, how much he's learned from Robert Pape without ever naming him and saying, you know, I want to kill everybody with air power from now on, but, and, and, you know, obviously special forces, but we don't want land armies and, and big bases because that's what got us in trouble. We got all these aircraft carriers. Why do we need military bases to, uh, you know, cause us blowback? And yet his government right now is embarking on an entirely brand new project to, as though they never started before, uh, to now expand a ring of bases around the Middle East so that they can wage war against the Islamic State that is only the spawn of their last four interventions there? Yeah, the, the, you know, one of the main points of the, the Tom Dispatch article is that, that there's very little that's, that's new about this strategy. I don't really know what, what President Obama's own thoughts or feelings or ideas about, about bases are, but, but it, you know, I think again, this is a, seems to be an example of where the, the Pentagon, you know, basically creates foreign policy for the government as a whole and the State Department and, and often the White House itself. 
um, have have little say uh, de facto in in setting foreign policy. And this is, you know, actually a foreign policy that goes back to uh, very least to President Carter um, and his enunciation of the the Carter Doctrine that. The United States would would intervene intervene militarily or do anything necessary to ensure the the flow of oil in the in the Middle East, um, and that began a huge buildup of of bases in in and around uh, the Middle East that that has has basically continued uh, to this day, and and now the Pentagon seems to want to entrench that that network of bases and a network that's grown more robust uh, since the beginning of the. The wars in in 2001, uh, and uh, you know, I, I and others see this as, as a really, uh, again, a, a dangerous development um, that we're we should be closing bases in in the region uh, that that's often have been counterproductive rather than than entrenching them further. Well, I mean, it just goes to show real failure of leadership on the president's part, where he has got to get his speechwriters in touch with the guys at the Pentagon. Because there's this massive disconnect between uh, what he say and what he do. And I don't mean to give him the benefit of the doubt or anything other than the fact that he seems intelligent, not well-meaning, but he does seem intelligent enough to understand. I know Robert Pape has at least talked to people who have talked to him. And he does say things from time to time that, you know, imply that he knows better than doing all the things that he turns around and continues to do anyway. That's all I was really trying to say, but... Um, so now describe these bases because, uh, in 2008, the Maliki, uh, government, the United Iraqi Alliance government that the U.S. put in power told George Bush, thanks a lot. Now beat it. And he didn't get his 56 bases. I guess maybe he's got a few now. Uh, how many of these bases are in Iraq, the new generation? So yeah, the, 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 the Iraqi parliament was the, uh, quite bold in, in rejecting the, Bush administrations and the Pentagon's desires to keep a large number of bases uh, in Iraq after the, the formal uh, end of U.S. combat operations there. And um, but in the past uh, year, year and a half uh, since the sort of ISIS phase of this long-running war has has uh, picked up, the Pentagon has about military now has about six. Is in in Iraq. Of course, the, uh, there's a lot that we don't know because they're not advertising a lot of it, um, and things aren't transparent in any part of the the base world. Um, uh, and meanwhile, we also have some, at very least, nine bases in in Afghanistan. And again, despite you know some the pullout of, of most U.S. troops, uh, and, and the plan is to seem to to keep uh, at least some of these bases very much in place. And I guess. That, that the, the desire on the part of the military is to, at very least, maintain access to as many bases as it can, mm-hmm. while uh, they are now talking about creating several hubs in the region uh, with with a, at least one base at least pointed to in in Afghanistan and and Iraq, as well as uh, other bases in Djibouti and smaller what they're calling uh, spokes uh, in this supposedly new system mm-hmm. uh, in places like Cameroon and, and other parts of Africa. By the way, so uh, the camp in Djibouti, Camp Lemonier, or however you say uh-huh. it there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I've read, and I forget now, I'm sorry if, it, if it's in your article or not. It's been a week or so since I read this, but uh, it, it's been talked about how the Chinese are putting a base there in Djibouti. And it's such a tiny little country. I wonder, it's the same kind of thing they had 
in uh, Tajikistan there for a while, where the Americans and the Russians both had military bases, like just a, maybe a horizon or two away from each other, something like that. And I just wonder, are, Djibouti's not kicking the U.S. out, are they? Or are they in favor no, of China, they're... or they're just going to do a, a Tajikistan-style thing there for <laughs> Yeah, there's there's no sign of that. Uh, no, uh, Djibouti is becoming something of a uh, a real home for foreign military bases. Uh, there's been a this is the Horn of Africa for the audience here. Sorry, this is the exactly. Horn of Africa no, on in the east on the equator there, uh, right at the gate of the Red Sea. Exactly, and that and that's the key that it, it it's at a strategic sort of what the, it's known as a chokehold in in sea lanes where there there's just a very small uh, uh, sea lane through which billions of dollars of, of oil and, and other uh, commerce uh, flows through. So wh- whoever controls this, uh, this ceiling uh, controls uh, much of the global political economy and in, in some ways uh, or a significant part of it. Um, so there's been a, a, a French base, the French colony Djibouti was, um, there's been a French base for, for decades as far as I know, um, and the U.S. military began occupying uh, Camp Lemonnier uh, shortly after the attacks of 9-11, very early in uh, 2002. Um, but since then, we've actually seen uh, Japan creating its first foreign military base since World War II in Djibouti. Uh, and uh, there is, uh, French presence remains. And then now uh, China appears to have signed an agreement to uh, establish some sort of military presence in Djibouti. So we form this very small country. Oh, uh, Dave, you're cutting out on us a little there, and we're going to break anyway. So we'll pick it up on the other side of this break with uh, David Vine writing at TomDispatch.com, Enduring Bases, Enduring War in the Middle East. It's also on Antiwar.com as well, under Tom Engelhardt's name. Uh, back in four. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with David Vine. He's the author of the new book, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. I need to get a copy of that thing. Uh, so we're talking, I guess, mostly here about the Middle East and the Africa pivot, um, as uh, Nick Terse has uh, covered so well. But um, I was wondering if we could focus here on um, West Africa and the consequences of the spread of the Libya war down into Mali and then uh, the hookup there of, I guess, AQIM and whatever other groups with Boko Haram and uh, the worsening of their movement there. And, you know, 
even on antiwar.com where, hey, we do our best, but it was just a headline for a day or maybe two that, hey, Obama invades Cameroon. I mean, he was invited, supposedly, quote unquote, invited by the government there. It wasn't not an invasion, but Obama sends troops to Cameroon. We already got drone bases, I think, in Niger and in Chad. What more can you tell us about the U.S. Army, Special Forces, CIA, spies, whatever else is going on in West Africa there? Yeah, there's a growing U.S. military presence, and, and, and certainly other uh, government entities, including the CIA, or, uh, have, a, have a presence. But the military in particular has been building up its presence uh, in Africa since, again, around uh, 2002. Uh, Nick Tersig, indeed, has done the, the best work to document this. And uh, according to his reporting, uh, the U.S. has uh, more than 60 bases or access points uh, around the continent. Um, for years, they've been insisting, no, we only have one base in Djibouti, as we were discussing. Um, but recently, they've started acknowledging the, the presence of, of mostly small U.S. bases, but these are you know, drone bases or special operations bases, sometimes uh, just military contractors, U.S. military contractors who are who are running the bases. Um, but it, it's, it's a growing U.S. military presence of a variety of, of, of taking a variety of forms um, from in countries you mentioned, uh, Cameroon being one of the most recent, but also Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, where, of course, there was some horrific violence recently, um, Kenya, Ethiopia, um, really east, south, east, west, uh, north, south. Uh, and it's, again, a troubling because the track record of, of uh, the Africa command has been, has been very poor. Uh, and the U.S. military's own reports have, have suggested as much. The Pentagon Inspector General has found that their humanitarian operations, so, so much of the, the, the increasing presence has been justified on the basis of humanitarianism, that they're just there to help people and run, you know, dental clinics and, and paint schools. Um, but the Pentagon's own Inspector General has said that, that the humanitarian activities have been really disastrous and or really have, have, have been ineffective um, and ill-coordinated. Uh, so at the same time, uh, research has shown that, that, that the presence in Africa has been counterproductive in many cases because it, uh, U.S. presence tends to uh, encourage some to take up arms against the United States and against sometimes uh, local governments. Uh, uh, one case has uh, been described as a uh, that the U.S. troop presence in Africa has backfired, and this was a, an article published in his own military review that uh, it's been a boomed insurgent group. So, well, you have to remember when it comes troubling. to you have to remember when it comes to the military, especially, but really all government counterproductive and productive are the same thing. <laughs> Right. Like Dr. Nick, who knew that inflammable meant flammable. It's the same kind of deal there where, oh, good. They failed and they created a disaster and uh, they spread war from Libya down through the whole West Coast of the continent. Great. Now we can put in a base here, some bases there. Let me ask you this. In uh, Sierra Leone, uh, when they sent the troops there to fight Ebola, uh and then, so now Ebola's gone, but did the troops stay or did they all come home? Tell me, tell me how many actually came home, what percentage of them came home and what percent stayed? I don't, 
I don't know the exact percentages, but it, it was used as an opportunity to increase the, the U.S. presence in, in West Africa. Uh, there is now a, a larger presence in Senegal, for example, where they created what's described as an intermediate uh, size base. Um, uh, and it looks, uh, from the time I looked into it, uh, there is a presence that, that has remained in, in Sierra Leone. It, it, as far as I know, it's relatively small, but, but any deployment, including for training exercises, is needed to build access and, mm-hmm. and to uh, lay the foundation, both literal and figurative, uh, for a larger U.S. military presence to return. Mm-hmm. And now, when it comes to these little bitty uh, bases uh, scattered throughout sub-Saharan Africa and so forth, uh, what exactly is the point of them? Is it just to keep their government and our government on friendly terms for whatever future economic deals? Because it doesn't sound like it makes much of a difference to the U.S. militarily uh, to have troops in Uganda or something, right? I think there are multiple aims, and, and some of it, I think, is, is political, some of it's economic, some of it's military. Uh, you know, some, some, for example, in, in East Africa, some of the troops have been going after Joseph Kony, but, you know, that, that search has been going on for, for years now, and so it's unclear what, what that's accomplished. Um, although it does appear that, that his operating zone, at very least, and the damage he's done has, has decreased in, in size. Um, but, uh, but again, I, I think we do need to pay attention to these even small presence, uh, that, that, that has been established. Oh, man, you're cutting out on us there, bud. Can you go uh, back toward the window again? Yeah, sorry. I, I <laughs> usually don't have to. How about now? That yeah, no, you sound fine now. Go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. Um, yeah, the, so even a small presence can uh, can lead to a much a much larger presence. Uh, generally, they're called the lily pad bases. Are part of the part of the aim is is creating a base that can be easy, easily and quickly expanded, so large numbers of U.S. troops can can show up on the scene. Um, so, uh, but I think as, you're right. At, at the same time, there there are political and economic dimensions to this buildup, where uh, creating a, a larger military presence allows the United States to uh, keep uh, governments in uh, within. Uh, an alliance structure um, that that has political and economic aims. Uh, so I think we have to, to look at all these dimensions at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think the most important, uh, most helpful way to look at it is, you know, China has been increasing its presence and, and influence in Africa for, for a decade or so now, um, but mostly it's been doing it uh, through economic investments in, in countries around the continent. The U.S. has been pursuing a similar strategy, but but has been doing so with uh, military investment and uh, building military ties with with uh, national militaries. Uh, and it, really, the, the, the China signing the agreement with Djibouti is is the first sign that we have that that uh, significant Chinese military presence might be uh, appearing on the continent of Africa. Hmm. Now, I think it's an important point that you make here that even uh, I mean, this is my my words, not yours, but you say we're effectively helping to block the spread of democracy, which is, I think, a really great way to put it, because 
you don't have to necessarily imply that the Americans are saying, oh, good, we want to back this dictator because we like him so much and we want him to be the dictator of this particular uh, sub-Saharan African country. They don't necessarily need to be that premeditated about it at all. It's just a matter of hooking up with this government and training up its army and, you know, giving it weapons and American welfare and whatever in effect is crowding out domestic politics and the ability of the people in whatever small developing country to control their own processes of who's in charge over there. And so even if it's not deliberate, we are, quote, effectively helping to block the spread of self-government in these countries. I, I think that's right. And here we can we can look uh, from Africa or move from Africa into the Middle East, where uh, you know nearly every country is is undemocratic to one degree or another, uh, and we have large, very large bases, much larger than, than most African countries uh, in throughout the Persian Gulf, with the exception of Yemen and, and Iran. Uh, there are bases in every Persian Gulf country, and uh, de facto, the, these bases are are helping to prop up and support these undemocratic regimes, uh, and frequently. Uh, undemocratic rulers will trumpet the presence of, of the U.S. Uh, and, and you can imagine if you know if you were a uh, pro-democracy activist in one of these countries, what what are you to think if uh, you know the, the the undemocratic regime is is hosting the U.S. military? Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, we are on the wrong side, and 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 not helping to to spread democracy around the world as so often is claimed when people justify the presence of U.S. bases around the world. Yeah, and by the way, I I should say I wasn't trying to spin for him. I think most of the time it is that premeditated that you know we love this dictator and love foisting him on the people of whatever country, and they'll just have to like it or lump it. Um, but I I was just trying to point out that even if you know they've never heard of the country they're training the army of in sub-saharan africa somewhere is still going to be the effect no matter what but yeah i mean when you look at as you're saying the the countries of the middle east like bahrain comes to mind you mentioned in here where in 2011 america was in the middle of overthrowing Gaddafi in libya but helping the saudi kingdom prop up the bahrainian kingdom and uh, I believe it was David Gregory asked Admiral Mullen on Meet the Press, but hey, um, I don't get it. Be- or maybe it was Chuck Todd. Anyway, he says, I don't get it, though, because uh, we're helping the little guy overthrow the dictator in Libya, but we're helping back the kingdom in Bahrain. What's the difference? And Mullen says, well, the king of Bahrain is our ally. <laughs> and it was just as simple yeah. as that. That's where we base our fifth fleet. So... In other words, if he has to kill every last Shia who demands the slightest modicum of representation in his government, then we don't give a damn about that. He couldn't have been more cold about it, you know? Hey, they do what we say. Yeah, and then that's the very sad thing, that that our our taxpayer dollars, our uh, political weight um, is is backing this sort of repression that we saw in, in rain and um, we're, you know, of course, we're continuing to, to back Saudi Arabia and in its uh, activities in, in its war in, in Yemen that has, by a growing number of accounts, taken a very large number of civilian lives um, and led to a humanitarian catastrophe there. So, uh, 
the the, the basing presence in in and around the Middle East has really led to some some horrific consequences. Beginning, you know, or, you know, most of all in, in the the general state of war that's spreading around the the region that can be tied fairly directly to the the, the U.S. military presence that has enabled. Um, and and waged a succession of wars now since 1980. All right, so that's the great David Vine. He wrote Island of Shame about the U.S. military base slash torture prison down there at uh, Diego Garcia and the displacement of the people there. And uh, his latest is Base Nation, how U.S. military bases abroad harm America and the world. And I'm sorry, I didn't ask you, what's the total number right now? Do you have it? Yeah, it's around 800. We'll never know for sure. Right. Okay, good deal. Thanks very much again, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Great to talk to you. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America Lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel Lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, I'm Scott. Check it out, dude. So, um, you guys Twitterers? There's a lady on there named Libya Liberty. Hind is her name. Hind Amri. I guess. Libya Liberty. And uh, I haven't really ever interacted with her very much, I don't think. Maybe not at all. Uh, but eh, let's see what she says. And here's what she just says. Libyan Facebook is full of news unconfirmed. Oh, I believe she's an expat living in the U.S., by the way. Uh, Libyan Facebook is full of news unconfirmed, she says. That General Haftar's war effort spokesman has broken ranks and accused him of war crimes. So, that goes in the woe-if-true category, as Corey Kreider put it here. 
That's America's sock puppet trying to uh, undo Libya War 11 by putting the next Qaddafi in there. <laughs> she says, the fallout of this may be huge or nothing at all because it's Libya. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much power uh, Haftar really has amassed to lose. In fact, I guess there's our segue right into our Libya section today. Libya's new government unveiled, stuck in Tunisia. Jesus, you know, <laughs> uh, no, I don't know either. Libya Don Militia won't let unity government back into the country. <laughs> Libya's new unity prime, oh, this is uh, Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com from yesterday, day before yesterday. Libya's new prime minister, Fayez Siraj, today unveiled his new cab, his new unity cabinet at a high profile UN backed ceremony in Tunis, the capital city of neighboring Tunisia. The hope was that this unified government would gain some control over the country. Things aren't looking good on day one, however, <laughs> as the unity government quickly became a government in exile when they tried to return to Libya and were stopped at the border by the Libyan Dawn militia who are not going to let them back in. The cabinet isn't a government of anything without approval from the parliament, which is based in Tobruk, and their inability to even get back into Libya has already led to two members of the nation's presidential council tendering their resignation just hours after their appointment. The U.N. pushed the two parliaments, one based in Tobruk and one in Tripoli, to come to some sort of unity agreement, but neither side appeared particularly on board with the plan, meaning ultimately they have created a government on paper with no more power than any of the other Libyan governments around at any given time. <laughs> I love the way Jason writes. He's great. You know, God, what a tragedy. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. We're talking about people are being shot and exploded and God knows how killed the death over there in this godforsaken catastrophe. And what's funny is, I think if you somehow could uh, tie Washington, D.C. to a waterboard and make them admit <clears throat> somehow what a disaster this is, in their minds, there's only one available answer which is Jeb or Hillary, or maybe the both of them together in the Jeb-Hillary administration, need to go over there and finish the job. That Barack Obama, he did a wonderful thing by waging a regime change there. He just didn't follow through enough. Why, that's what Max Boot says in Commentary Magazine. Come on, man. We needed to train up the army. We needed to hold purple fingers at elections, and we needed to have the kind of success in creating a nation that we've had in Iraq. Oh, that didn't work because also Obama, too, huh? So, you know what? This was Hillary's war. We just need strong Clintonian leadership to come in and put the middle part of North Africa right again. She can do it. Who believes this? You know, I saw a thing earlier. I don't know where the hell I got it. It was just a clip, of some news clip of Hillary Clinton. And the lady says, the first woman president. 
I gotta be part of this because or else I'd just kick myself, you know? And I'm thinking, really? That's it? Just because you're a woman, that's it? That's what I hate about politics more than anything, is what the American people think of politics. Yeah, whatever I am, whatever my identity is, that's what I want to be lorded over everyone else. Whoever you are, if you're interested in politics at all, it almost always is only just what you can get at the expense of others. That's it. What if Hillary Clinton, just mathematically speaking or whatever, you know, hypothetically, what if she's like this sixth or seventh worst person in North America? But she's a woman. What if... I came from the future, and I told you she gets us into a war with Iran and Russia, and hundreds of millions of people are killed in thermonuclear explosions. Do you still say, yeah, but she's a woman, and so what matters to me is that in the feminist glass ceiling, freaking blah, 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 huh? She's horrible. She is for everything horrible and nothing good and opposes nothing bad. She's bad on everything. She's Hillary Clinton. You're telling me that having any old woman be the first president now overrides all other considerations just because that's who you are. For God's sake, man. I just, I can't understand that. I'm a skater, so I guess I should spend all of my time lobbying the government to take people's rollerblades away and to take their golf clubs away and to seize property and give it to me, force every non-skater in town to take money right out of their paycheck and put it in my skate park. Because what else could I possibly be interested in in the world other than myself? I can't think of anything. Anyway, Hillary Clinton is the grand dragon of the Libyan Ku Klux Klan, who's responsible for a massive pogrom that resulted in the deaths of thousands of blacks because they were black. That's why they were killed. The entire town of, whatever, the Tawagra, I can't say it right, was wiped off the map. Because of the racist Al-Qaeda clansmen that she fought a war for in Libya in 2011. Well, but whatever, glass ceiling and hero, well, geez, you know. Me and my daughter, we were looking at TV, and and my daughter thought, wow, a girl could be the president too, and I was just so happy that she thought that maybe one day she could have power and authority over people and make them obey her will, because that's the highest goal of our society, right? To be the chief executive of the national government's departments, the commander-in-chief of its army and navy, Right? Not be the CEO of a hospital chain or something, you know, stupid. 
and assemble a female progressive PC power in a new era of forwardness. <laughs> Just, yeah, she's killed hundreds of thousands of people to death. Hundreds of thousands. Ah, a great many of them women. How do you like that? Go back to my archives, 2011, 2012, I guess. And there's David Enders reporting from Libya. Yeah, man, no lie. At the refugee camp where all the women are gathered around telling the stories of Hillary's Mujahideen coming in the middle of the night and raping them. Using plastic bags for prophylactics. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. All right, you guys, welcome back to the thing here, man. I'm Scott Horton. Hey, listen, if uh, you own a business or you're part of some kind of group or something like that, and you think that perhaps you might consider wanting to advertise on this show, yeah, go ahead and do that, or there won't be no show to consider advertising on no more. That's called the free market. This is a going out of business sale. Uh, and the prices are the same as always because they already were rock bottom, rock bottom prices here at uh, Crazy Horton's advertising during my anti-war radio show Emporium. So come and get it. I'm uh, Scott at scotthorton.org. You give me money and I'll tell the people about your stuff. Scott at scotthorton.org. And for the rest of you, you could just... You have nothing to advertise, you just give me money anyway, and I'll just take it. Uh, and But if you look at scotthorton.org slash donate, you will see all the great kickbacks that you can get. Like, uh, you know, as a free gift, a token of the show's appreciation to you, or, you know, whatever phrasing type thing it needs to be. Uh, your tote bag comes in the form of one ounce silver rounds, eh? QR code, commodity discs. The future of currency on Earth. The silver coin that tells you what it's worth on the open market in real time. The greatest invention ever. The QR code commodity disc. Uh, or you get audiobooks from Listen and Think Audio or actual books from Charles Goyette or Sheldon Richmond. Or just check it all out at scotthorton.org slash donate if you want to help to support the show. Okay. So now... Here's the part of the show where I talk about Israel. Israel plans to seize large chunk of West Bank farmland. The outskirts of the farming area have already been seized by the settlers at any rate. 
says Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. In a move that seems determined to fuel more international backlash against them, the Israeli government is preparing to seize a large plot of Palestinian farmland near Jericho, allowing nearby settlements to access the land for themselves. And that's, I believe, originally a Reuters story uh, that they broke here. 380 acres of territory that under, I guess, Oslo, he's saying, was intended to be part of an eventual Palestinian state. But... You know, the settlers objected to this as they've been illegally farming the outskirts of the land for years. Since it is in Israeli military-administered land, the Palestinian owners aren't allowed to use it. Oh, look at you. You're an absentee landlord. Because I got a American-bought M16 pointed at your head. If you dare come near... The government seizure, then, is the latest in a long line of retroactive legalizations of illegal moves by settlers to appropriate to, to appropriate privately owned Palestinian land. The argument will likely center on them using abandoned land after the military barred the Palestinians from it. See, from my sarcasm, straight to their excuse. Israeli settlement expansions and territory seizures like this are illegal under international law, Though the Israeli government insists that they have a religious obligation to seize the territory and usually react with fury when criticized for such moves. You don't have to obey the law because of magic, dude. Because of ancient Hebrew mythology says that they can do whatever they want. Everybody knows that. All your farmland are belong to me. Because I feel like it. Ah, now we're getting there. Because I feel like it. And because what are you going to do about it? Israeli Supreme Court approves demolition of Bedouin village of Um Al-Hiran to make way for Jewish town of Hiran. This is a different part of the West Bank. And this is... A huge story, of course, for the Palestinians. They've been, uh, the Bedouins in this case, who, yeah, count. Uh, they are Palestinians, right? They, that's not a separate designation. They're Palestinian Bedouins. Uh, a nationality on one hand, and I guess a separate ethnicity on the other, right? Are the Bedouins a separate ethnicity or just a separate nationality, but still going way back in two nationalities in one place there? Kind of thing. Well, yeah, I should learn more about stuff. Anyway. Uh, this has been going on forever, man. The Israelis have been kicking them out, and they've been rebuilding, and they've been getting kicked out and rebuilding. And, of course, uh, the Israelis say, well, when? you don't belong here anyway. Yeah, but that's because the Israelis already stole the land where they actually used to do their nomad thing. They've already been kicked off of their land. So now this is where they're se- what they're settling for, but not good enough. So the Israelis keep kicking them out over and over. Now the Supreme Court, I guess this is the final ruling, is screw you guys. You can go die in the Sinai Desert. This is ours. And beyond just the crime against the rights of these human beings uh, to own property here, um, is the fact that by building a settlement here, they will be effectively... If I understand the issue right, and I'm pretty sure I've read this enough times, they will be effectively cutting off Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, from the rest of the West Bank. 
there would be no contiguous territory to get through. So a huge divide and conquer factor there for the people of East Jerusalem. You know, the ones who haven't been shot to death. And, uh, and the rest of the Palestinians on the West Bank. So anyway, um, that's a big deal. You can read all about it at uh, MondoWeiss.net. I admit I hadn't read this whole thing. I may have more to say about it tomorrow. See if I can maybe get Kate on the show to talk about it for that matter. Israeli Supreme Court approves demolition of Bedouin village of Um Al-Hiran to make way for Jewish town of Hiran. It's at MondoWeiss.net. And, you know... I guess the same reason I'm harping on this is the same reason I'm always harping on the first Gulf War and the Bill Clinton's war against Iraq and all that. It's the gigantic ignored thing that they want you to not pay any attention to when they're explaining things to you in a way that amounts to a lie, man. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and anything less than the whole truth amounts to a bunch of crap. It is terribly misleading to say, well, okay, maybe... They don't hate us just because of our freedom. Maybe they hate us because of Israel, but we like Israel, and so, well, screw you. But that's not it. It's not they hate us just for Israel existing. As they, the terrorists who you know launched their war against the United States back in 1993, have said ever since then, they've specified ever since then. It's the occupation. And I'm sure, I guess, if you ask the most extreme of them, uh, if they would like to see an end to all of Zionism and the Israeli state altogether, they might say, or I'm sure they probably would say yes. But that's not what's got them fighting. What's got them fighting is the colonization of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the generations long now humiliation of uh, the Palestinian people there. That's the weakest term I could have come up with for it right there. But you know what I mean. Degradation. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, being interviewed on Al Jazeera by Mehdi Hassan. And a secret analysis by the agency you ran, the Defense Intelligence Agency, in August 2012 said, and I quote, there is the possibility of establishing a That's declared so or undeclared <laughs> Salafist, it's not secret anymore, it was released under FOI, the quote is, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria, and this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime. The U.S. saw the ISIL caliphate coming and did nothing. Did you see this document in 2012? Was this come across your table? One of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I paid very close attention okay. to all this. So when you sure saw did. this, did you not pick up a phone and saying, what on earth are sure. we doing supporting I mean, that, these Syrian that, rebels? That kind of information are... is presented, and, and what did you those, do about become, it? those become, I argued about it. 
did you say we shouldn't be supporting these groups? I did. I mean, we argued about these, the different groups that were there, and we said, you know, who is it that is involved here? And I will tell you that uh, I, I do believe uh, that the, the intelligence was very clear. And now it's a, it's a matter of whether or not policy is going to be as clear and as defining and as precise as it needs to be, and I don't believe it was. But we in really, 2012, we, but in we 2012, which was can. We three, that we can, but three years ago, let's just be clear, just right. for the sake of our viewers. In 2012, your agency was saying, "quote The Salafists, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Al Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria." Mm -hmm. In 2012, the yeah. U.S. was helping coordinate arms transfers to those same groups. Why did you not stop that? If you're worried about the rise of quote unquote yeah, Islamic I, extremism, I mean, I hate to say it's not my job, but that. My job was to, was to ensure that the, that the accuracy of our intelligence that was being presented was, was as good as it could be. And I will tell you, it, it goes before 2012. I mean, when we, were, when we were in Iraq and we still had decisions to be made before there was a decision to pull out of Iraq in 2011. I mean, it was very clear what we were, what we were going to face. Well, I admire your frankness very on this subject. Very clear what we were going to let face. Me, let me just, to one before we move on, just to clarify once more, you are basically saying that even in government at the time, you knew those groups were around, you saw this analysis, sure. and you were arguing against it. But who wasn't listening? I think the, I think the administration. The administration turned a blind eye to your analysis. I don't know that if they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision. I think it was a willful decision. A willful decision to go support an insurgency that had Salafists, Al Qaeda, well, and a Muslim willful decision to do what they're doing, which which you have to really you have to really ask the president, what is it that he actually is doing with the with the uh, policy that is in place because it is very very confusing. I'm sitting here today, Maddie, and I don't I can't tell you exactly what that is, and I've been at this for a long time. There you go. All right. Now, of course, it's a very self-serving uh, bit of answers by him. It's everybody's fault but his. But still, just think about what he's admitting there. It's just incredible, isn't it? And then the lack of coverage of it, too. Just, well, how are they going to explain it? They can't, so they just don't. But here's Dan McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. This one's on the blog at antiwar.com. Al-Qaeda allies to represent opposition in upcoming Syria peace talks. The Saudi-backed opposition committee representing the rebels fighting to overthrow the Assad government in Syria have agreed on a chief negotiator for peace talks scheduled to begin in Geneva next week. The rebels will be represented by Mohammed Alush, political leader of Jaish al-Islam. Mohammed Alush's brother, Zahran, led Jaysh al-Islam until he was killed in an airstrike at the end of December. Under Zahran's rule, Jaysh al-Islam was a fiercely Islamist group that insisted strict Sharia law must govern Syria. He maintained close ties with the al-Nusra Front, otherwise known as al-Qaeda in Syria. John Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, put together a detailed profile of the then-leader of Jaysh al-Islam. Should this group fulfill the U.S.-Saudi-Turk-Israeli-Qatari wish of overthrowing Assad in Syria, there is little reason to believe the bloodshed would stop. In fact, it may only really begin in earnest if they succeed in gaining power. Here is Landis on Zaran. Again, I'm reading uh, Daniel, La uh, pardon me, uh, Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute here. 
Uh, and then he's quoting Landis. Zaron calls for cleansing Damascus of all Shiites and Nusairis Nusairis is the old term uh, that referred to the Alawites prior to adoption of Alawite. Okay, thank you. So just say that then. God damn it. What is the point of that? The Alawites. It's going to cleanse Damascus of all the Shiites and Alawites. Additionally, Jaish al-Islam were said to have taken part in the Adra massacre, which saw the slaughter of dozens of minorities, including Shia, Christian, Kurdish, Ismaili, and Druze residents. The recently deceased leader of Jaish al-Islam went so far as to praise Osama bin Laden on video. And he has a hot link there to his proof, by the way. The opposition committee, of which Mohammed Alouche is chief negotiator, has flatly rejected the presence of any rival group at the Geneva talks. If their demands are met, it will mean that the only group representing opposition to the secular Assad government will be allies of al-Qaeda, who have repeatedly rejected democratic governance in favor of Islamist rule under Sharia law. Representatives of more moderate groups opposing Assad, as well as Kurds and others, are not to be invited, or the Saudi bankroll Jaish al-Islam will walk, leaving the Western regime changers without the proxies in whom they have invested so much time and money. Yes, you read it right. The U.S. and its allies in the Middle East are putting forth al-Qaeda allies to govern Syria once Assad is overthrown. And, uh, well, sorry, thirsty. You know, it occurs to me that, um, hey, you can't bring al-Nusr ISIS to Geneva, right? So the fact that these guys are there, hey, maybe they can negotiate on behalf of the jihadis. Uh, I don't know how they're supposed to come to an agreement, especially Assad's got to figure now that he's got Russia, uh, you know, Putin's not going to back down and go ahead and abandon him now. So, and seriously, who would expect Golani or Baghdadi to keep their word in any negotiations? And who believes for a million, in a million years, let's say that this new guy is... Why, only a quarter as uh, Al-Qaeda-like as his brother. And all of his foot soldiers, why, they're all a bunch of democratic atheists who were just pretending to be into that Sharia stuff for a little while, you know, for the guns, for a while. But how are they supposed to negotiate anything beyond abandoning their war against Assad and joining his against Nusra and ISIS. He certainly can't negotiate on behalf of the jihadis. Um, he's going to come back and tell them, okay, guys, I cut a deal. War's over. Hell no. They like the war. They're into it, man. They don't care about dying in it. They like dying in it. And uh, just like Assad sees no good reason to quit now, Patrick Coburn's written quite a bit about this. Virtually all factions in the war have no good reason to quit now. And just think for a minute, what would happen? I guess nothing. At least it would be funny. If any of these kooks, that is, you know, the American politicians and policymakers and think tank writers and experts, ever had to say outright what it is that they meant, you know? What it is that they're really talking about. Well, listen... We want some suicide bomber, head chopper, bin Laden-loving lunatics to win, but not others. 
only the more moderate of them because, well, because Saudi and Israel prefer that. <laughs> Something like that. It doesn't sound like a good enough argument to me. I don't know. Oh, and then here's another one. Turkey rules out allowing Kurds at peace talks. Next week's UN peace talks on Syria are looking all but certain to be delayed as the various nations tasked with deciding who to invite have failed to come up with a proper list. The Kurdish question itself seems likely to derail the entire process. And then, so he's talking about the YPG and all that. So, And of course, they I think the leader of the YPG has said that he don't want to be ruled by Damascus, but he didn't want to see Assad fall either. either. Just imagine what would happen starting the next day. Who says Austrian school libertarians have to be statists on immigration? We should support government goons busting people's heads to keep them out of the country? Well, some have tried to make that case in the past. But now David Hathaway's hard-hitting new book, Immigration, Individual versus National Borders, refutes, point by point, every argument they've made. This is a short, well-written book that shuts down the closed borders argument once and for all. Immigration, Individual versus National Borders by David Hathaway. Forward by me. Buy it now on Amazon.com in both print and Kindle versions. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Wrapping up here. I'm going to try to get some of the bad news out of the way for you here. First of all, in the fighting both sides of the war in Yemen file here, U.S. drone strike kills two in eastern Yemen, unidentified suspects so far, but um, it was in the Far East near the Oman border, I guess. And the uh, presumed target then would be Al-Qaeda guys, right? AQAP. There's a car with a couple of guys in it, I guess they say. Two people burnt beyond recognition. But they were suspects. But so I don't think it's likely that this was part of the Saudis' war against the Houthis for Al-Qaeda that America is backing. This seems much more likely to be the old war. The one they've been fighting, the drone war against Al-Qaeda, which has done nothing but build them up. Uh, it hasn't done quite as much for them as the outright war on their behalf being fought by America and Saudi right now. But still, it's done great things for them over the years, killing innocent people and you know leaving the orphans to join their organization and this kind of thing. It's almost like they're doing it on purpose. Um, but anyway, uh, so here they are. There's still the CIA and I guess it's an air force drone, right? So you got the air force is on one hand refueling Saudi jets on their way to fight and bomb for Al Qaeda to hit Houthi targets for Al Qaeda. Well, at the same time, other men in the very same USAF are following CIA orders to take out that car of presumed Al Qaeda suspects. How do you like that? A lot? Like me? Me too. A lot. It's great. Because, you know, I don't know. 
you know, in the Islamic State, we're fighting for Iran against the jihad in the east, but uh, against Iran and for the jihad in the west. Well, that's pretty contradictory. But, you know, you got Iraq on one side, Syria on the other, frontier, you know. It's kind of two different wars sort of thing in a way. But this thing is just, it's the same stupidity, only more focused, you know. So I like it. Uh, oh. Meanwhile, UN reports staggering civilian toll in ISIS war in Iraq. False human rights violations by all sides. A new report by the UN Assistance Mission for Iraq is warning of a staggering civilian death toll in the ISIS war there, with their own accounting putting the toll at 18,802 civilians. And you know what? I forget now about Margaret's numbers. I'm sure hers are better. Oh, and this is important, too, I think. Uh, this came out the other day. U.S. citizen pleads guilty to supporting Al-Qaeda-allied group in Syria. Which Al-Qaeda-allied group in Syria? Arar al-Sham. Arar al-Sham according to the U.S. Department of Justice, why they're not moderate at all. And if you support them, you will go to prison. And yet, it's admitted by Charles Lister from the Brookings Institution that the U.S. has been helping to run the so-called Army of Conquest and, you know, before that, the Islamic Front was the name for it. That's nothing but a coalition of Arar al-Sham and the al-Nusra Front. That's it. Al-Qaeda in Syria. Sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York. They're the moderates. Hell, they were going so far there. The Council on Foreign Relations and uh, the Qataris in Al Jazeera there. And at Brookings, the Qataris are major funders of the Brookings Institution, so-called center-left think tank. Um, well, yeah, center-left think tank, not so-called. Um, and uh, even David Petraeus, as detailed in the Daily Beast, were pushing this whole thing, never even mind Arar al-Sham, hell, they're Greenpeace, or they're, you know, some kind of progressive leftist hippies uh, on the spectrum, because Al-Qaeda are the moderates. They didn't even have to show anything moderate about Al-Qaeda. All they had to say was, look at how extreme ISIS is. Okay, therefore, we like Al-Qaeda now because they're not quite as extreme as ISIS. Uh, okay, but they're still Al-Qaeda. They're still loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York. So you'd think that maybe that counted for something, but maybe not. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. Remember, there was a story... Three, four years ago now, right? 2013, wasn't it? 2013, when the DOJ prosecuted a guy for going over to Syria, and he said, but I was recruited by the CIA. And everyone thought, that's plausible, was he? He was going to fight for a terrorist group against Bashar al-Assad. That's our foreign policy. So, you know, the poor guy, if only he had had a... A lawyer who was a golfing buddy with the right people who could have made the connections. He could have had the CIA vouch for him to the DOD, right? 
I swear to God, Mr. FBI agent, just call the CIA. They'll tell you. They're the ones who recruited me to go fight against Assad for Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York. And anyway, I just, you know, it's a little, it's a card for your file. It's a little bit of confirmation bias. Oh, yeah? Well, the Department of Justice says that Arar al-Sham are terrorists. You're going to maybe need that for later. Or, you know, you might want to have it to refer back to. All right. And now uh, here in North Korea, good news from North Korea. North Korea would end nuclear testing for peace treaty and an end to U.S. military drills. U.S. rejects ending drills, won't comment on peace proposal. Why is that not good enough? I ever think that maybe it is the Americans that are the bad guys and all this stuff. No, not to... I mean, don't be stupid. It's not like uh, there's anything good about the regime in North Korea. But on this issue, who's the commie? Who's the one trying to prevent interpersonal human relationships? Personal, you know, economic and otherwise. It's America. We call them the hermit kingdom, but we keep them isolated. You think it would really be hard? I mean, and again, I admit, I don't think the U.S. government should exist. It shouldn't have the power to tax or to give tax money to anyone. But come on. America could go over there and make a deal with the North Koreans in a heartbeat. I think they should, if not cease to exist immediately, they should go and end the Korean War. You know, it's just a ceasefire and not a peace treaty from 1952 on. And um, it's just crazy. We've got 35,000 troops over there that are serving as nothing but a tripwire to make sure that if there is a war, many, many thousands of them will be killed and then um, the rest of America will be bound to go back to full-scale war against North Korea. And for what? What do we have to lose if North Korea normalizing relations and how could they resist the normalization of relations if that's what the americans really wanted and thought you know we will allow investment in your country if you will just begin to play ball with us blam ice broken relations unfrozen and Obama's been absolutely horrible on North Korea. I guess he figured they ain't going to do nothing, so just forget it, man. I'm not going to pay too much attention to that. And he hasn't, he's certainly done nothing to negotiate with them. I guess maybe he figured negotiations would end in failure and then he'd look like a chump, so why even bother? Except the history is that Jimmy Carter and Warren Christopher had no problem coming up with a great deal with the North Koreans. It was America that broke the deal under George W. Bush in 2002 and three. And broke the agreed framework, forced them out of the MPT, and, you know, might as well have just handed them the damn bomb at that point. Drove them to decide to go ahead and make nuclear weapons to keep us out, which has so far worked. Uh, again, like yesterday, the opposite of Gaddafi's policy, which was give up everything AQ Khan ever sold them. But anyway, so here, Kim Jong-un, that brutal, murderous tyrant, is saying, hey, look, man, we will stop testing nukes if we can get a peace treaty. But our answer to that is, oh, what, we don't talk to evil? That's beneath us to negotiate? 
and just negotiated a nuclear deal with Iran, and to great effect and fanfare. So why not? 